Good morning from me uh, to everyone at home. Good morning if you're with us in the room. Uh, it's great to be back. And um, I, re- I mean, it's one of those mornings, I don't know how you're experiencing this, but where it's you sort of wonder, do we need a sermon? Should we just sort of sit in that place of worship and prayer? Um, but I think the invitation's been given to us this morning that we are asking God to move us from milk to meat. And today in this scripture, we come up against some of the most challenging and beautiful, freeing teaching of Jesus. So let, let's pray as we open God's word that God would, oh Lord, we pray that you would open hearts, lives, spirits, communities, cities, nations to the freeing truth of the gospel and of the King Jesus. Let it be so today by the power of your Holy Spirit. Breathe Holy Spirit. Move your church to greater levels of completion, fullness, maturity. May we overflow with your abundance today that we might see our cities come alive. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. My favorite book of last year, I've got to say, my favorite book of pretty much almost any year was David Brooks's The Second Mountain. You may not be able to see, you can see an image of it on the screen, but you may not be able to see the subtitle, which reads, A Stirring Guide to Escaping the Prison of Self. In it, David Brooks speaks of life as a journey in which we're invited to climb two mountains. He speaks of two mountains. The first mountain is the mountain of personal achievement. The mountain of personal achievement. And uh, it would include things like worldly success and, and career ambition, traveling in the right circles. It describes the attempt to achieve things for ourselves. We may say things like getting a job, as I said, building a career, buying a home perhaps, finding a a life partner, settling down, having children, if that's what's in our minds. Now these aren't bad things, and, and David Brooks is clear they're not bad things in and of themselves, but they're not ultimately fulfilling. Brooks says that climbing the first mountain might achieve temporary happiness, But you'll never find joy on the first mountain. I just saw this this very morning. Again, I think we have a slide for this. But Anthony Hopkins, uh, probably one of the most famous and successful living British actors said this. Success is a way to survive. But at the end, we're all desperately alone. Powerful words. Those are first mountain words. Success, the first mountain pursuit, is a way to survive. It's a way to move on in life, but it won't achieve ultimate fulfillment. Then there's the second mountain, and Brooks is clear to point out that our intention as whole human beings must be to move towards second mountain life. And this is the one characterized by living a life for others, not for self, not for personal fulfillment, but for a greater cause, A cause beyond your own personal fulfillment. And while the first mountain is characterized by happiness, the second mountain is characterized by joy. Not a temporary fulfillment, but a deep sense of fulfillment. 
Interestingly enough, he says often the way from the first mountain life to the second mountain is some kind of crisis. He speaks of the valley, and we may say it's personal crisis, maybe loss of a loved one, maybe some kind of perceived failure in some first mountain pursuit. But through the valley, we often find the wilderness, and it's there and through that that we find the second mountain. Now, none of this should be a surprise to any of us who've read the Bible. Any of us who've experienced the teaching of Jesus, this shouldn't be surprising. Because the gospel is the truth, is the proclamation that the way to life, the way to fulfillment comes through giving of ourselves for a greater cause. Not in finding ourselves, but in losing ourselves. And that exactly is what Jesus speaks about in our text this morning. He offers us an invitation to life. To life that is truly life. But the question the church must address again and again and again, daily is this question, how do we find this life? How do we reach, in David Brooks's language, the second mountain? In Jesus' language, the life that is truly life. Well, Jesus doesn't leave us guessing. Here's what we read. Here's what Joe has read. He then began to teach him that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, which is just shorthand for saying Everyone. (laughs) He then began to teach them the Son of Man must suffer. The must suffer. Jesus is doing something here which is so profoundly surprising. Just last week we were talking, weren't we, about the kingdom announcement, the proclamation that in Jesus the kingdom of heaven was at hand, that the rule and the reign of God had been initiated. This is good news that God was taking charge. And after this, we see a succession of examples of what it looks like when God takes charge. Blind eyes opened, opened. people uh, under demonic oppression liberated. It's a powerful uh, succession of transformation moments. And uh, and in the midst of that, Jesus calls disciples and, and sets them on their own kingdom ministry. It is a powerful Litany of victory. Again and again, Jesus victorious over the powers, the principalities. And in the midst of this, the question that's lurking is, who is this one? Who is this Jesus? And just before our text this morning, Peter gets there. He says, you are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. You are Messiah. Peter, as it were, has finally arrived at the place of recognition. He's arrived at the moment of understanding. He's articulated what Mark told us in chapter 1, verse 1, that this Jesus is Messiah. He's king. He's the one who's bringing the kingdom. Peter believes, but he doesn't yet understand. You can believe, but not yet fully understand, and Peter's in that moment. And so he says, Something strange when Jesus articulates, or something strange goes on. Rather than agreeing with uh, Peter's articulation of Jesus' identity, rather than saying, yes, Peter, you've got it. I mean, he does say that, but he's, he actually starts to qualify it. He doesn't agree wholeheartedly or simply. He launches into this clarification. Peter says, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah. Jesus warns them not to tell anyone. And then he begins to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer. You see, Jesus doesn't even take upon his lips the same language. He doesn't even say Messiah. He says Son of Man. Why would that be? 
Well, the first reason is that surely Messiah comes with all of this loaded baggage. Messiah was a word uh, that typically referred to a, a kingship that had a victory stamped all over it. It was a military kingship. And Jesus doesn't want to use that word because he's, he doesn't have in his mind and in his heart that kind of kingship. So he takes upon his lips this phrase, son of man. Now this could just be a way of saying man or someone, just a, a way of referring to a person. But there's also some possibility that this phrase in itself had a connection with themes of humiliation, danger, and death. It doesn't really matter because Jesus is really clear. He doesn't paint between, uh, between the lines. He just says it as it is. The Son of Man must suffer, be rejected, and be killed. And after three days, rise again. What Jesus does for the disciples, what he does for us today, is to introduce for them a paradox. Something which doesn't fit within there boundaries within their expectations he says that the son of man the king the messiah is going to suffer and that suffering isn't peripheral it's not on the outside it's not distanced from his mission it's at the heart of it it's at the very center of what it means for him to be the king that before he comes in glory, before he's exalted as king, he will first suffer. The kingdom is coming, as we saw last week, but it's going to come through suffering, rejection, and death. We might say this, it's not going to be a cakewalk, it's going to be a crosswalk. There will be no kingdom without the cross. And Peter... <laughs> Peter is, to, to use the word, discombobulated. Peter is thrown for a loop. Peter is flummoxed, dismayed, insert your own word. Peter can't catch this, and so his immediate response is to shut Jesus down. He's offended by the proclamation. He says, no, it can't be so. And so he does what only a very confident person would do. He rebukes Jesus. He says, it can't be this way, Jesus. Jesus speaking plainly in front of people. And Peter takes him aside and began to rebuke him. I mean, that is boldness. That is courage. But Jesus shuts Peter down even more firmly than Peter tried to shut him down. Why? Because Jesus has heard these words before. He's heard this logic before. The logic that says, you can have a kingdom without a cross, Jesus. You can come into your kingdom without a cross. He's heard those words, but they first came on the lips of Satan. This is the primal temptation to walk straight into Jerusalem and to take the throne without suffering. And Jesus rebukes Peter and he refuses the temptation. He refuses it again and again and again through Mark's gospel. Let's be honest. When it comes to the invitation that Jesus lays before us, that he lays before Peter and every disciple to live uh, with the cross at the center of our lives, we can be tempted to do what Peter did. To try and shut Jesus down because we're offended, to rebuke him. We might even say the words 
There but for the grace of God go I. Not for me. Thank you, Jesus, for doing that on my behalf. Now I don't have to walk in that direction. That phrase, there but for the grace of God go I, was actually first coined by a man called John Bradford. I only just learned about him this week. He was an English, cheer for England, Protestant reformer who lived between 1510 and 1555. And one day as he watched some prisoners being led off to be executed, he said these words, there before the grace of God go I. But as it would transpire, Bradford was later imprisoned in the Tower of London under the reign of Mary Tudor and along with Thomas Cranmer, Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer, the Oxford martyrs, he was burned at the stake. They studied the New Testament together in prison beforehand. You see, Bradford learned what so many Christians, every Christian has to learn, which is that the Christ didn't walk the way of the cross simply so we wouldn't have to, but so that we would know how to. Or to put it in the language of another martyr, one of my heroes, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when Christ calls a man, when Christ calls a woman, when Christ calls a person, he bids him come and die. Jesus' next activity in the text is so interesting. We were asking the question, who's this for? Who is this summons to death, to uh, defeat, to suffering? Who is it for? Is it for church leaders? Is it for people in lands of persecution? Well, Jesus says, no, it's for everybody. Listen to this. Verse 34, then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, He calls the crowd. The implication is clear. This isn't just for the 12. Not just for apostolic leaders. Not just for the disciples in those days. This is for everybody to hear. Every disciple must walk this way. This is for us. Not just for the spiritual elites. Not for the SAS. But for every disciple. And the message is, whoever would would come after me, whoever would be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. What a message to bring. Let me paraphrase it for you. We don't need Eugene Peterson for this one, folks. Even I can read this one. Come and die. If you want to follow me, Jesus says, you need to be willing to walk to your own death. Not any old death. A death of humiliation. A death of offering your whole self in order that you might receive the life of the kingdom. I would love to sugarcoat this this morning. I would love to tell you the 10 principles of why this is actually easier than it sounds. The six ways in which Jesus actually meant us to take this metaphorically. And I can't do it. Because 10 of the remaining 11 disciples took this extremely literally after Jesus' death. What one scholar says is this. What Jesus calls for here is thus a radical abandonment of one's own 
identity and self-determination, which means your self-will. And a call to join the march to the place of execution follows appropriately from this. Such self-denial is on a different level altogether from giving up chocolates for Lent. Blessings today on those who have done that. That is some suffering, I grant you. But it isn't what Jesus has in mind. Listen to this. It is not the denial of something to the self, but the denial of the self itself. Lots of selves there, but hopefully you caught that. What Jesus is inviting disciples, you and I, into is not just the denial of something we like for a season. It is a denial of our very self-will. Our desire to express ourselves. To build our self-esteem. The posture of discipleship, as we said last week, is ultimately described by surrender. Not by self-fulfillment, but by self-emptying. And I'm convinced that as it pertains, as it relates to us as disciples, this is the core of the gospel summons. We cannot escape this. Oh, but goodness me, do we try. Oh, you know, when it comes to this commission, I am as wriggly as you get. Oh, I hate this. In practice, I love to preach about it, but I hate to live it. I'm wriggly. And I'd, I'd honestly, as many of the pastors would probably relate to, I love to preach the gospel as a sales pitch, a bit of a, a, bit of a PR exercise. I love to say to people, come and have life. There's a bit at the end about death. I love to just hide that little bit under a basket and just proclaim the bit about John 10, 10. You've heard it before. Uh, He's come that you may have life and have it abundantly. And indeed, that's the truth, isn't it? But it's not the whole truth. And as gospel preachers, we said that we'd proclaim the truth, the full truth, and nothing but the truth. And the life that's truly life is a part of the truth. But if we fail to proclaim the true gospel that Jesus invites us into that life through our own death to self, then we're not proclaiming the truth. Indeed, if we're saying that, we're raising disciples who only know how to drink milk. We create disciples who are as infatuated with themselves, as entitled as desperate to uh, exhibit and examine their own identity as everybody else out there in the world. And indeed, I've spent most of my life as that kind of disciple. I spend most of my days thinking in that way. The old self dies hard. I can preach this to you. But early in the morning when the kids want breakfast and I'd really rather be praying and doing something holy. When the rubber actually hits the road, and I could tell them to go and find their mum, we see the level of maturity in my own walk with Jesus. You know, we can look to save our lives. We can look to defend or protect our lives. And if we do, we'll find that the experience of life that Jesus offers us slips through our fingers. 
Alternatively, if we're willing to go beyond ourselves, to eschew, to push away, to move beyond comfort, safety, control, a desire to establish our own glory, our own fame, we might find greater proximity to Jesus than we ever dared imagine. And a greater intimacy and communion with the Father than we ever even dreamed possible. We might find the life of the kingdom, a life of hope a life of joy, a life of peace. Perhaps one of the reasons we're all so anxious is because we haven't learned this truth. We haven't learned that life is found by moving beyond the self. One final quote. Jesus stipulated that those who wish to follow him must be prepared, and listen to this, to shift the center of gravity in their lives from a concern for self to reckless abandon to the will of God. A sustained willingness to say no to oneself in order to say yes to God. The no that we're talking about has a greater yes. It's not death for the sake of death, it's death for the sake of Christ. And Paul says this, doesn't he? Whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as lost. More than that, he says, I I regard everything as lost for the sake of of Christ, that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own which comes from the law, but the righteousness of God which is based on faith. We want something that's beyond us, and in order to receive the something that's beyond us, we have to get beyond ourselves. For now, for most of us, at least in this time and in this part of the world, a literal death is unlikely for the gospel. We will all die, but a death as a martyr is unlikely for most of us at this time. And yet, in Christian history, it's been a a possibility for many. Today still, if you look at the work of Open Doors, today still, in many parts of the world, it is a distinct possibility. We need to continue to pray for the church throughout the world. In fact, most of the places the church is growing the most, it remains a possibility. And yet even, and especially in the Western world, especially in the Western world, this is the message we most need to hear. Because we've been raised, many of us, on our entitlements and our privileges. Taught to place ourselves at the center of our existence. And if we're going to make any progress in the gospel, we have to get beyond this. Beyond a a narrative, a story of our life which has us as the heroes, us as the central actors, and we need to find the cross at the center. The whole point Jesus is making here is that we begin to experience the life of the kingdom when we give ourselves to him and to one another. The life we most long for is found through the death that we most fear. And let me say this, we failed to proclaim this in this pandemic, I think, broadly speaking, as the church. Rather than proclaiming to the world that there is a story that's bigger than this life, I think we've collaborated, we've colluded with a story uh, which has been described often by fear of death. Each of us will die. Uh, Even if it's not a martyr's death, every one of us needs to start thinking about our death now. As Graham Tomlin, Bishop Graham Tomlin said a few weeks ago in the Times, your deathbed is too late to begin thinking about your death. And it is in thinking about death now, uh, not just this kind of death, but literal death, that we actually become people who are prepared to, 
to live in this way, to live in this gospel way in life here on earth. Perhaps we need to amend John John Bradford's phrase. Rather than saying, there but for the grace of God go I. Perhaps we as the church need to day in and day out, in the morning before the kids come and ask for their breakfast. We need to start praying, there by the grace of God go I. To my cross, to pick up my cross. And I say this to you, church, today, proclaiming that this invitation, this summons to die, is our greatest reason for hope. This is our greatest source of joy. This is the good news we proclaim to the world, that there is a life beyond the self. And if we will learn day by day, with many failures on the way, to walk the way of the cross, we will inhabit the kingdom. In this life, we will experience the life that's truly life on this side of the grave. And we will walk into death with sure and confident hope that God will walk with us. Are you ready to surrender to him today? Are you ready to seek his will above all else? To place the cross again at the center of your life? To lay down your life for his?